This New America NYC event took place on September 13, 2016, and is titled Command and Control, a Social Cinema Screening, and features Robert Kenner, director, producer, and co-writer of Command and Control, Eric Schlosser, producer and co-writer Command and Control, Sharon Squassoni, Director and Senior Fellow, Proliferation Prevention Program, Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Tamara Patton, Doctoral Candidate, Nuclear Futures Lab, Princeton University. First off, thanks to you both uh, for your very valuable contributions to this field. Sharon and I were saying how excited we were to have a film being made about uh, the nuclear weapon field. Um, it's often a forgotten topic despite its importance. Um, before we dive into some of the issues together with Sharon, um, Eric and Robbie, could you uh, give us a little bit of context about why you embarked on this project? Uh, what was it about the nuclear weapon debate today um, that made you feel that this was a story that needed to be told? Well, for me, I read Eric's amazing book, uh, and I thought uh, it, it was a story that w would be great to be able to tell. It was, the challenge was figuring out where the images would come from. Uh, and then when we found, Eric sent me a picture of a Titan II missile silo, the only one in existence, uh, and it found out that we could film in that silo. And I thought it would be, you know, incredible to go tell the story of Damascus. Um, you know, on some levels, when I was a kid, the uh, issue of nuclear weapons was a very prominent issue. I remember ducking under desks to uh, protect myself from a nuclear explosion. Uh, wouldn't have been too effective, but uh, that's what we were taught would keep us safe. Um, and I remember in the 80s when um, there were large demonstrations against nuclear weapons, and which actually affected policy. Uh, Reagan and Gorbachev listened to those demonstrations, and we cut back by thousands of weapons, what we had. So I thought, Eric's story, uh, uh, Command and Control, would make a great film and thrilled that we got the opportunity to do it. I, mean, I, I really believe that there are two existential threats that we face, and one is climate change, and the other is threat of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, there are lots of films and books and groups devoted to bringing attention to the harms of climate change, and I'm not diminishing the importance of that, and Robbie made an amazing film on the subject. But you know, we may be able to slow the pace of climate change. We may be able to deal with some of the harmful effects. But the detonation of a nuclear weapon is instantaneous, and its effects are irreversible. And I was very much struck as I began the research for command and control by how this is the most important issue that nobody's really talking about. So in my book, I tried to use this narrative of the Damascus accident as a way of exploring a whole range of issues pertaining to the management of our arsenal from the dawn of the atomic era until the present day. And what Robbie was able to do is just hone it down into a very uh, succinct narrative that has so many of those larger themes implicit. So it's my hope that people will go see this film, and this film can be 
part of a process of beginning a national dialogue on nuclear weapons. The film that Robbie made about our food system, Food Inc., I think had a huge impact on people. And I'm not saying this film will or can have the same one, but it's something that's worth trying to do. And without trying to preach any specific policy position, we're just trying to remind people that uh, these machines are out there and they're ready to kill you. Too true. Um, I think Sharon and I can relate um, that reporting on a topic with such a heavy culture of secrecy um, is no easy feat. And um, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a sense of the types of challenges you faced in trying to bring this all together in terms of accessing the technology, the records, and especially the people, um, both in the reporting of the book and then bringing it to life on film. Well, for the reporting of the book, I was extraordinarily fortunate in that I had some very high-level people from the outset who thought that what I was doing was worthwhile and helped me do it. And one of the people who was really a mentor to me in this very complex field is the theoretical physicist Sidney Drell, who uh, is at the Hoover Institute and who happened to be the head of the Congressional Panel on Nuclear Weapons Safety. And so after I started learning about the Damascus accident, I went to see him and I asked, because he was an expert, he's been a Jason who's advised the government on nuclear weapons issues since the late 1950s, early 1960s, could this warhead have detonated? And he said yes. And so I began to meet with other very high-level people, weapons designers, former Strategic Air Command people, who gave me an insight that I would not have been able to get from the published record. And then I did Freedom of Information Act requests. And just very briefly, and then I'll turn it over to Robbie, if you were to do a Freedom of Information Act request saying, I want documents on nuclear weapons accidents and nuclear weapons safety, you would probably get nothing. Uh, but somebody who shall remain nameless gave me a document that wasn't a classified document, but it had an extensive bibliography of the names of classified documents, classified memos, because the titles were not classified. So what I was able to do, and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of citations, I was able to go through them, find the documents and the memos that seemed really relevant to what I was writing about, and then when I submitted them to the Department of Energy and the Department of the Defense, there was no way for them to deny that these things existed. But it still took years to get them declassified. And when they were declassified, they would be censored in a way that was absurd because I got different documents on the same subject and they'd been censored in different ways. So when you put them together, you could figure out what one person had blocked out. And what was consistently true is, you know, look, with nuclear weapons design, there's absolutely things that need to be kept from the public. If there was ever a justification for secrecy, it's how to build weapons of mass destruction. But again and again, what was being censored was information that might embarrass government officials, embarrass government bureaucracies, and um, that's what your tax-paying dollars are paying for. 
people ask, you know, how do we not know about this incident? Uh, so on one hand, we found footage uh, from 1980 that was on national news, it was on local news, but that footage was about a missile that exploded. Uh, there was never any recognition that there was a warhead on that missile that could have exploded. So that kept it from becoming a story that lasted in the news. This was a story that was reported for a few days and disappeared. As Eric was saying, it was during uh, the Afghanistan war. There was a big uh, presidential election coming up. Uh, but this, so people heard about it, but uh, it was really not a big story. But in reality, when, you know, as Eric starts to talk about it, it was the whole East Coast of the United States was in danger, and it would have been a huge story if people, uh, if it weren't kept secret. Uh, but so on one hand, we have news reports, but they're not the real story. I think Dynasty was on that week, too. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd like to just also add, to put it into context for a younger audience, you know, at the time in, the 19, in 1980, it was in the middle of the Cold War, Right? The younger generation can't even remember, but you know, the Cold War ended 25 years ago. We, the United States, and actually the US government, there are some okay people who work in the US government. Absolutely. Um, it, there, there was a culture of secrecy that we are, I think, now trying to climb out of, but it's very, very difficult. And that's why citizens, um, around the country, not just in, in Washington where we, you know, policy experts talk to ourselves or talk to each other, but average citizens, you need to pay attention because this nuclear complex, we are spending about $52 billion a year. Only a very small portion of that is devoted to threat reduction, what we call threat reduction and arms control. Uh, and we're about to embark on a modernization program where we're going to spend a trillion dollars over the next 30 years. This is unlikely to be an issue in the upcoming election, uh, but you need to stay tuned to it because if that is not, if you, if you believe that these nuclear weapons pose risks also to ourselves, then we need to come up with a new plan. I think, for international security. And we're the good guys, right? Because if you think Russia is as transparent or even has a FOIA system, yeah. or China, Pakistan, India, Israel, North Korea, I mean, just last week with the latest North Korean test, um, I'm sure there are a lot of things that uh, we need to worry about in those terms. Sorry. We're much more transparent, transparent than Great Britain. I obtained documents through the Freedom of Information Act about accidents that occurred on British soil with American weapons, and the British government still won't acknowledge that they occurred. The only thing I'd say about secrecy is during the Cold War, there was intense compartmentalized secrecy. So you were only allowed to know information in your area. And in the film, you know, Robbie shows briefly how, uh, I mean, I obtained documents from the Freedom of Information Act about accidents that I gave to Bob Purifoy, the head of weapons development at Sandia, the, the lab responsible for the design of all of our weapons, the, the machinery and safe, of it. And safety. Of and he weapons. was head of safety, and he did not know about these accidents because the accidents weren't being reported to the people 
who had designed the weapons and knew the safety problems in the weapons, and the guys out in the field uh, didn't have access to information about safety problems with the weapons they were handling in the field. So too much compartmentalized secrecy doesn't protect the country. It actually increases the danger. Absolutely. I think you point to a very important systemic problem in that if the information about the accidents isn't being reported to the people who are actually creating the weapons, where do you find the ability to actually solve the problems before they happen? Um, I think the figure that you mention in the book and the film is especially jarring in your effort with the Freedom of Information Act that the Pentagon officially only reported 32 accidents and you uncovered over a thousand. Um, when you take a bird's eye view of the system and those accidents, um, did any patterns stand out to you um, in terms of identified cause or accountability? Um, in Damascus, we saw the blame uh, very unfortunately placed primarily on the individuals as, as human error. And I was just wondering if you see that as part of, as more of an isolated incident or if it's more of a trend and a systemic problem. Well, I'll answer the first part and this part about blaming the victim, I think you can really speak to because you spent a lot of time with the victims. The pattern that I saw is like with any technology, there's a learning curve. And it's only once these things are out in the field and being used, you know, no matter how, no matter how hard they tried to anticipate what might go wrong, uh, there were just constantly surprises. So we learned through experience that it's not a good idea to have airplanes loaded with nuclear weapons flying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And the airborne alert, which was depicted in Dr. Strangelove and the film Failsafe, it turned out to be a bad idea because no matter how skilled the pilots, no matter how well maintained the airplanes, um, you'd have crashes there'd be nuclear weapons on board. At the very least, you'd get a scattering of plutonium, but at worst, you could get a full-scale detonation. So, you know, we shut down the Airborne Alert program in 1968 after an accident in Thule, Greenland. Um, but this is one of the problems even the, the best engineers have in anticipating. Um, when, the, when the NASA engineers were predicting what the accident rate of the space shuttle would be, they felt fairly confident there would be one loss of a space shuttle per 100,000 flights. And we lost two after about 165 flights. So very often, you just don't know what the problem is going to be until you encounter it. And uh, with nuclear weapons, the problem can be catastrophic. Eric, in his book, wrote a much more comprehensive story than what we just saw here. Uh, but I thought Damascus on some levels was a microcosm for many of those stories. And in this story, it's called Human Error. A man drops a socket and almost blows up the eastern seaboard. Uh, but the fact is, human beings make mistakes. It's not hard to drop a socket. Uh, the Air Force didn't feel the need to put a safety net under that socket. Uh, Earlier that week, there happened to have been a bigger accident that took place in North Dakota where 12 thermonuclear weapons almost exploded because someone forgot to put a screw in and the plane, you know, thousands of gallons caught on fire and engulfed the plane. Luckily, the wind was blowing in the right direction to keep it from exploding. 
Uh, there were times where people brought seat cushions on planes that caught on fire that almost caused World War III. So there are numerous what we call human errors, but as Eric says in the film, at some point those little problems become systemic errors because human beings make mistakes. Uh, there are low probability that we'll have an accident, but the consequences are so incredible, uh, we have to figure out some way of making it a safer system. And, and for, again, back to the secrecy and for publicity reasons, there was a very strong pressure to blame human error and blame the operator of the system rather than publicly acknowledge that there were problems with the system. In the case of the Titan II, uh, this was an aging weapon system. In many ways, it was obsolete. And yet, at the height of the Cold War, it would have been difficult for us to unilaterally just take all of these missiles out of service without getting anything in return from the Soviets in arms control negotiations. So these weapons were kept on alert, on duty, long past when they should have probably been retired. It, it, Harold Brown was great in that he said this was ultimately just a bargaining ship that we knew was dangerous, but we kept alive. Uh, but it was very dangerous. And I think on this issue of uncertainty, um, Sharon mentioned the issue of modernization. Um, a scary thought for me is that at one point, the Titan II was considered cutting edge technology. Um, today, as many of our nuclear systems are reaching their expiration dates um, largely at the same time in the 2030s, um, some even sooner. Uh, we see the Defense Department pursuing an across-the-board modernization effort, um, including procuring new cruise missiles, new bombers, uh, new submarines, new ICBMs, and upgraded warheads. Um, from what you've seen and what you've learned about the pervasiveness of nuclear accidents, especially as systems become more complex, um, what is your sense about the risk the United States is facing um, in making such wide-sweeping changes to its nuclear arsenal in such a relatively short time frame? <laughs> Just a little easy question, yeah. Tamara. You know, I do, I do a lot of work on nuclear energy also, right? And it's the same thing. It's a very sophisticated technology to do a pretty simple thing, which is to boil water, right? Yeah. But if there's a catastrophe, there's a catastrophe. And the consequences are horrible. Um, again, it's the, you know, and in the nuclear energy field, they talk about walk away safe, right? We're going to build a nuclear power reactor that if there's ever an accident, you'll be able to walk away and leave it for 72 hours and everything will be fine. Well, we've been hearing this for 40, 50, 60 years, right, in terms of nuclear power. In the modernization right now, um, at least with respect to warheads, and, and you talk about it a little bit in, in your book about the wooden bomb, right? We need to make something that's so robust, maybe even simpler, because we're not testing nuclear weapons anymore. That's a good thing. We haven't been testing since 1992. But, you know, you've got to make some trade-offs, right? How simple is it? How robust is it? How, you know... The, the, the technology and human interface, all of that is bound to change um, in this next modernization 
tranche. Really, though, however, what we're talking about when all the, the big money that we're spending is going to be for platforms. It's going to be for new submarines. New Now we're talking about a new uh, long-range standoff cruise missile. Um, it shouldn't be business as usual. We should not simply just say, look, these, these items are ending their service lives. We need to replace them. And we'll tweak it a little bit, and it'll be a lot better, and it'll be more sophisticated. We need a national discussion about you know, how much rely, reliance or how much do we really want to rely on these nuclear weapons. President Obama started that, but it's not finished. For that, we need citizen involvement, we need congressional, we need sanity in Congress, uh, <laughs> which is harder to, uh, to get um, than it sounds. But um, uh, on the technical risk, it's hard. You know, I'm, I'm not a weapons designer, I'm just a policy geek. But maybe you have something else to add. I'm not a weapons designer either. <laughs> if someone finds a weapon, I didn't do it. Um, but I will say, there are some aspects of our nuclear weapons complex right now that are reminiscent of September 1980. Uh, our principal land-based missile was first deployed, the Minuteman that we have, Minuteman three that we have, was first deployed in 1970 and was supposed to be retired in the early 1980s. Our principal nuclear bomber is the B-52, which was designed right after the Second World War and has not been manufactured since John F. Kennedy was president. And um, these systems are aging. Uh, there was a, a nuclear weapons accident in Colorado in May of 2014. The government has declined to reveal the details of it, but it's remarkably similar to in this film. There, were, there was a work crew in a Minuteman silo in a small town in the plains of Colorado. They were doing routine maintenance they did something wrong. No one has revealed what they did. They brought in another crew the next day, and they severely damaged the missile. Multi-million dollar damage to the missile. The Air Force won't say anything more than that, except once again, the workers were disciplined. Um, they had to go back for retraining, which meant they clearly had done something wrong. The Associated Press has really been leading on this story, has filed a Freedom of Information Act request because the Air Force legally is supposed to release the Accident Investigation Board report on an accident like this, and they've classified it. So there are problems in the system. And the only good thing about it is this should be an opportunity, as you said, for us to have a national discussion about why do we have these weapons? How would we conceivably use them? And if we're going to have them, how many do we really need? And what is being asked for right now is uh, a repeat of a Cold War budget, as though the Soviet Union still uh, was in existence. And even more importantly for me, that the strategic doctrine underlying all of these weapons hasn't changed in, you know, essentially 50 years. So, if we don't have a national debate, a very small group of policymakers in Washington are going to make decisions that aren't just going to be profoundly expensive, but that are going to have enormous consequences for another half century. 
I'm a layman who is basically a filmmaker and knows very little about the issue, but I read an article Eric wrote, actually read the article, mm. uh, but uh, that we had weapons in Turkey uh, during the last coup of, uh, about a month ago, uh, and the power to that base was cut off. And so we, here we have these nuclear weapons right near the Syrian border. And I have to say, I would feel safer if we didn't have those weapons there. They don't make me feel safer. Uh, so sometimes maybe less is better. So. Absolutely. And I think the decisions being made now um, in the Defense Department that plan to extend the lifetime of nuclear systems into the 2080s and beyond, um, I agree, are... Um, at best premature and at worst a very critical mistake, um, especially as you note that some of the defining issues um, in terms of national and international security for younger generations are likely to be things like climate change, um, where you know it will require an incredible amount of resources and will likely require even more international cooperation um, rather than competition in order to overcome um, those problems. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org. <laughs>